Welcome to this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to start off by reminding you of the most important truth in the entire universe. God loves you. Now, a few weeks ago, when we finished our last episode, we had looked at and answered the question of, what is the most likely explanation for where the universe came from? And before we take our next steps in this journey, I thought it might be helpful to maybe take a step back for a minute. And again, ask the question, what are we trying to address here? Why are we heading in this direction? It's important to recognize that the strength of understanding where we're going, the strength of the argument is found not in any one interesting fact. There's a lot of interesting facts out there that we could look at. The strength of the argument is in the journey and looking at the, ex looking at the explanatory value of what both sides of this equation bring to the table when we look at how can they best explain how we got from nothing to where we are today. Are we just an example of random chance? It was time and luck and some molecules bumping into each other and voila, we went from nothing to where we are today. There is no explanation for it. We're simply random chance and naturalism is correct. There is no higher power. There is no anything. We simply are. Is that the best explanation? Or is it more likely the case that we are the result of a creator, that we were, that the universe and ultimately us were created in all of this, that we are the byproduct of an intelligent process for some reason? That's really where we're going to go. So this week, I want to stop and take a step back. As we look at those two possibilities, there's an enormous amount of animosity directed at the idea that there could possibly be a creator who is responsible for everything that we see around us, ultimately including us. And I want to just go through for a minute why I think that is and where we're going and why this is important. I think there's two reasons that there's so much pushback to this idea of a divine creator. I think the first is really along those lines of, well, we, we have a distrust of God. We think God's angry with us. We don't like God. We've heard all sorts of things about what God believes. Trust me, a lot of those things probably not true or are taken out of context. So there's a lot of things that we've heard and outside of any context, we simply disagree with God or we dislike God or deep down we figure that God dislikes us. And maybe it's best to do kind of a preemptive strike and to break up with him before we have to face his judgment. And just getting him out of the way makes things easier for all of us. It's more fun. We can live a more entertaining life outside of having to deal with a creator. I think there's a lot of question there around this idea of submitting to a creator. Nobody, especially as Americans, we have this, we have this thing against kings and creators, and we don't like the idea of bowing a knee to anybody. And I... And we get deep into that mindset. That was why we started off the podcast looking at that question of who is God? What is his plan? What is his purpose? Why are we here? How does he identify himself to us? And remember, when we looked at that, what we recognized is the story of the prodigal son, that God identifies himself to us as the loving father who's waiting for a relationship with us, who's waiting for us to return to him. So it's important to recognize what all of those components are. And that's why we started the podcast with those first few episodes. If you haven't watched those episodes, I really want to encourage you to stop here and go back and do so. Because it wraps enormous context around the rest of the journey and where we're going. And the reason I say that is, 
if I'm right, if that's really the purpose, that's how we got here. We were created by an intelligent creator. An intelligent designer put all of this together. Then what we should expect to see is something out of the ordinary. What we should expect to see is that this little blue planet floating in space that we find ourselves on is unique. And not just a little bit unique, but radically unique. You know, it's the opposite. I, I grew up as a Star Trek fan. Star Trek and Star Wars, I adored them both for different reasons. But you know, as a Star Trek fan, you get used to this idea of a federate, United Federation of Planets, of hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of M-class planets in our galaxy, in this quadrant. And that life is very common, and it comes in all shapes and sizes, and fortunately for makeup budgets, there are normally people with two legs and two arms like us, but everybody's got starships, and you've got the Prime Directive, and life is very common and ordinary. Is that actually true, though? Or is life uniquely rare? And what we're going to find as we go forward is that from the beginning of the universe to us, we find this enormously complex, well-designed universe that has been designed specifically for us to support life on this little blue planet that we find ourselves floating on. And don't worry, we're going to back that up some of it tonight as we talk about the anthropic principle. If I'm wrong, well, we would expect to find life all over the place. It's Star Trek and Star Wars. Life is common, it's ordinary, and we're not nearly as alone in the universe as we sometimes think we are. I think the second reason that we find so much opposition to this idea that we might be the product of a creator, loving or otherwise, is that there's two misconceptions that have come out of the 1800s that have stubbornly stuck around despite the fact that they have been thoroughly disproven. Number one is this idea that the Darwinian theory of evolution, that natural selection adequately wiped God off the map. There is no reason for God. We have explained everything without God, and we're just fine on our own. All of the answers are here, or we're soon to discover them. Just give science a little bit longer. You know, it's where we start referring to science in the third person. Just give science a little bit longer, and science will have all of the answers. The problem is that's not true. The last hundred years have produced an explosion of knowledge that despite what you would have thought have not, hasn't driven us away from God. It's brought us right to God's very doorstep. What do I mean by that? I mean, I'll give you a few examples. The discovery of the Big Bang and everything that came out of Einstein's general theory of relativity, when we look at that and the implications that it's created, has clearly brought us to a place where we understand that the universe had a finite beginning, and we've talked about that for the last few weeks. When we look at things like the beginnings of life, the complexity of the cell, the complexity of what we understand about how complex biology is, DNA and all of the building blocks of life that go on around us, when we look at how enormously well-positioned we are in the universe to support life, when we look at universal fine-tuning, when we look at all of these things, rather than burying God and saying, we don't need God, we've explained everything, the further we go, the closer to a creator God we get. And we're going to talk about all of those things in the, in the episodes to come. Far from getting rid of God, science has opened up in new discoveries that bring us constantly closer to God. The other misconception that's come out of the 1800s, and remember, we're talking about things that developed around the Civil War. You know, in other, any other area of life, we look at this and go, horse and buggy, who cares? That's, that's old, ancient ideas, thoughts, and technology. 
but somehow we want to hold on to Darwin's 160-year-old theory. And the other thing that we want to hold on to is a group of ideas that emerged in the late 1800s that somehow the Bible was unreliable. It was written by people who lived hundreds and hundreds of years after the events at hand. They were anonymous. Well, we don't know who they were, but we know for certain somehow that at the same time they had all sorts of bad ideas in mind and they were just out to manipulate us and the things that they wrote had nothing to do with the events in, hand, in question that actually took place. I find that interesting because on one hand we're told we don't know who they were, but on the other hand we seem to know exactly who they were and what their intentions were. And we have all of this enormous skepticism that came out of the late 1800s that is backed up by nothing. Literally nothing. In the last hundred years, New Testament scholars have reclaimed the high ground on so many of these points by honestly looking at and analyzing the Bible, especially the New Testament as we look at that. What we have found in the last hundred years is that the documents of the New Testament, far from being written as some sort of mythology, match up very correctly with the style of writing common with ancient biographies. They were written to give us an idea of the life and times that Jesus lived. Furthermore, the documents themselves, instead of being dated hundreds of years after, in the last hundred years we see that time frame collapsing to a point where, as we, when we get to that point, we'll look at it, very likely the first gospel accounts were written very soon after Jesus' death and resurrection. You know, Jesus died and was raised somewhere around 32, 33 AD, right around in there. And what we find is good reason to believe that within the lifetime of most of the eyewitnesses who were there, and remember, the gospel accounts were written by people who claimed to be eyewitnesses. And, ever, and there are very good indicators that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written well before 70 AD when Jerusalem falls. There are very good indicators that Luke is written probably in the late 50s, early 60s, and Matthew and Mark were written either in the early 50s, maybe even pushing back into the late 40s. So they're written very soon after the events that transpired. When people were alive who could say, yes, I was there and I saw it, or people who were alive who could look at it and say, that never happened. Even John, the last of the Gospels written, with discoveries of fragmentary pieces of John that date right back to the end of the first century or the very beginnings of the second century. Even John, that skeptics believed had been written hundreds and hundreds of years later, is now considered by many scholars to have been written definitely in the first century, much earlier than anyone would have ever thought. All of these ideas that came out of the 1800s, as we've reclaimed the heritage of the Bible, as we, as we look through it through a proper lens of a book written by Jewish believers in a Jewish context, has reframed the Bible into this incredible context where we understand it so much better than we previously did. And what we've come to understand is the credibility that it has has been dramatically enhanced. And those individual books, those four individual Gospels, and then all of the letters and other books included, have enormous more credibility than they did in the 1800s. And when you honestly look back at the claims made in the 1800s, you have to scratch your head and ask why. 
So all of these old ideas, as we've progressed further, whether it's knowledge of the Bible or whether it's scientific knowledge, have brought us closer and closer to God, and admittedly the God of the Bible, and we're a long ways away from identifying that if we were created, was it the God of the Bible who did it? The reason I put these ideas on the table today is as we start to look at this, we're going to start to see some real issues for naturalism. And I want to continue to diffuse this idea that anything other than, than the Bible being true is better than the Bible being true. And I always want to challenge you, what if at the end of the day you discovered that you were created by a God who loved you more than you could possibly imagine, by a God who went and suffered the ultimate death to reconcile himself with you? What if at the end of the day you found someone who loved you more than you could possibly imagine, who's been waiting for you your entire life? This idea that we have to do anything other than allow for the possibility of God to exist needs to have died back in the 1800s where it came from. And on that note, I think I'm going to stop. I, I realize when I'm looking at my watch that I have been going on a little bit longer than I had intended to do for this week's episode, but that's okay. If you go all the way back to episode number one, when we originally started this journey together, I said this podcast was going to be, was going to be for three different types of people. The first person would be those people who are identify themselves as Christians. You are looking to answer some questions. You're wanting to strengthen that understanding of, well, why do I believe what I believe? The second group of people were people who just didn't know. Um, is there really a God? Is there not? I mean, how... Where did the universe come from? People like that who just weren't sure. And then the third group of people were people who were skeptics looking at this, going, I firmly believe there is no God, and the universe simply came from nothing. This podcast is for three different groups of people, but the message is the same. And the message is what I started off with this week. What if, just what if, a God who loves you more than you could possibly imagine is at the heart of everything that you see around you. You know, as we get caught up in this, and in the next episode now, we're going to talk about the anthropic principle. But as we look at that, it's so important to keep a focus on the God who loves you. And as a, if you're a skeptic, and I get it, if you're a skeptic, that statement still probably at this point sounds ridiculous to you. But as we continue this journey going forward, it's good every once in a while to stop and take a step back, like I said at the first of the episode, and to kind of look at where you are. Where, what, what are the reasons that we each believe what we believe? As a Christian, when I look at this, and I was challenged this week with a, a podcast that I was listening to where someone was laying out some things, and I, I, I sat through that podcast and listened, and, and I was challenged with some things that I had to reflect on. I hope as you're taking this journey, no matter where you are in the process, that you'll stop and take a step back and look and say, why do I believe what I believe? If I'm a skeptic and I really just viscerally dislike this idea of there any possibility that there's a God, I, I'm, I'm asking you, take a step back and look at that. If you're somebody who says, well, I, I just, I could never believe in a God who allowed this, this, and this. I hope you're maybe starting to, to look at those positions and go, well, what if all those things that we talked about at the beginning, God's plan and God's purpose and who God is, 
that maybe God has sufficient justification to allow for the things going on around us because in the end, what he wants is me. And to get to a relationship with me, he's going to have to allow all of us some leeway. And when God allows us some leeway, the results are sometimes messy because we as a, as a species, um, we, we create a lot of mess behind us. And if you're a Christian, I hope you're looking at it, and I hope, I'm hoping this strengthens some of the, the beliefs that you have as you're looking at it. So I think I, I want to stop with this week's episode right where we're at. And let's just pause for a minute, and then we'll pick up and move forward next week with the question of the anthropic principle. Um, but, but this week, I just take a moment. Just take a moment and look in the mirror and ask, why do I believe what I believe? And as we're starting to move forward into these questions, again, if you're a skeptic and you're looking at this, and we can't get, naturalism cannot get off the ground. At the beginning of the universe, naturalism needs help. If that's what you find at every step along the journey, that naturalism desperately needs help to keep it going, because as a theory, naturalism or philosophy, you might say, naturalism cannot keep the ball moving forward from nothing to where we are today without enormous amounts of help and luck. Is it actually a viable theory? I want to thank you for joining us this week. A little bit, again, not what we planned for, but this is a good place to stop. I want to thank you for joining us this week, and I hope you'll join us next week here on Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. You can. I would love it if you would hit the subscribe and like button here on our videos. If you'd follow us on our videos on iTunes and Spotify. And if you have any questions, if you want any more information, I'd love it if you reached out to us on our website at prooftograce.com or via email at prooftograce at yahoo.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. We're going to stop recording right here. I'm going to immediately jump into the next episode, because that's where I thought we were going to be anyway. And we'll continue forward, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.